This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners this week on the show we have leonard lindenmuth vice president strategy and population health for bassett healthcare network bhn this is a aco and value-based network that's based in cooperstown new york home of the baseball hall of fame and this health system is delivering high quality health care throughout central new york their value-based care network has a six thousand square foot mile footprint roughly the size of connecticut and this is a health system that's been around for 100 years, and we have an executive that's been with them for nine years, and he started their value transformation journey when he joined as an executive in 2014 and uh, started the Bassett Accountable Care Partners LLC, which is their MSSP ACO, and this is a group that's been steadily moving in the direction of taking on more and more risk but making sure that they're on this journey and, and doing it in a very diligent way to, to get the outcomes that they're seeking for the populations that they serve and the stakeholders in the organization as well. So, Dan, I really enjoyed our conversation today with Leonard. He's a really good guy. I've enjoyed getting to know him over the last couple of years. Yeah, Eric, you said it well. This is a great uh, rural health organization, and Leonard's a fantastic leader. And, and it's really interesting listening to his story about maturing and risk and how the organization is being very thoughtful and intentional about that process. And uh, he's got some great examples of of cost savings and initiatives that they've taken on, like their program for pharmacy savings. And uh, he, he talks about their workforce issues that they're faced with, you know, that are similar across the country, but how they're addressing it. And, and we dive into the equity conversation. There's a lot of great uh, information that Leonard's shared with, with us. And I look forward to our listeners hearing more from him. Well, listeners, we certainly appreciate you each and every week for checking out the content if you don't want to miss a future episode, please sign up for our newsletter, race to value.org forward slash newsletter. And uh, we love the comments, uh, the support. If you want to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated if you're so inclined. And let's now hear from Leonard Lindenmuth as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Leonard, welcome to the Race to Value. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast this week. Oh, thank you, guys. It's my pleasure as well. Well, you've served as the Vice President of Strategy and Population Health at the Bassett Healthcare Network since 2014. And Leonard, you've been leading a value-based care transformation 
throughout central New York during that time. I mean, your network covers a 6,000 square mile footprint, roughly the size of the state of Connecticut, and it's centered between the more urban areas of Albany and Utica, Syracuse markets. And the network was founded as a group employed model, and it's evolved to approximately 750 physicians and advanced practice clinicians. And your network also has five hospitals, a nursing home, a home care company, DME provider, and the Bassett Medical Group, which is an integrated practice tied to the network. And in 2014, Bassett created the Bassett Accountable Care Partners LLC, which was a vehicle to participate in the CMS MSSP program. And it began operations in 2015 as an upside-only model. Now, as I understand, you've gone through several iterations of performance periods and currently operate in the upside only Model B program. And also, as I understand, this value journey that you've been on, it's really delivered tremendous benefits to the organization and, and your strategies are continuing to evolve regarding the use of claims data and managing leakage in the system. So, Leonard, as we start our conversation today... I wanted to see if you could walk us through the Bassett value transformation journey and describe why this is such an important area of focus for the long-term performance of the organization. Great question. You know, I think what helped us, it's changed the the culture. The value-based journey, as as you know, is very difficult and long, and uh, it, but it's helped us to understand much more about ourselves than we could have if we had not been on that journey. You know, in the MSSP, we get claims data, which really tells us the behavior of our institutions in regard to, you know, leakage, in regards to uh, spend. We didn't feel that we are ready necessarily as a rural institution to take, you know, downside right away. We have a greater appetite for risk now than we ever have had, but we're still very cautiously kind of optimistic about entering that space. But we we now have physicians that will actually talk 180 degrees different than when I first came on here with regard to the notion of capitation, with regard to coding, regard to having more, more of a conscious about spend and kind of looking at, I think, our populations as panels of people versus necessarily just patient encounters. We've got into the DISRIP, which was the New York State Medicaid expansion. But I think in, in our everyday life, the, the value journey has just made us better, more conscious, has had us look up to see what's out there. And I found these things like really stimulating. They help evolve us. And I, I think for a small institution that covers a big footprint, it's really allowed us to be something that's above normally what our league would be. There's not an upstate institution in New York State that is involved as, in as many things as we are. And it's not an overnight journey. I mean, you know that as well as I, if not better. But it's helped us just think of the opportunities and think, think of the differences that are out there. Well, Leonard, I couldn't agree more, and I'd, I'd really like to dive in with you and talk a little bit more about how Bassett Healthcare Network is approaching risk in the Medicare Advantage program. As a point of reference for our listeners, currently there are about 45% of all Medicare beneficiaries, or about 30 million people, who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And the CBO projects that by 2031, MA enrollment will balloon to 43 million people, which would be 57% of all Medicare participants. With that growth trajectory in mind, coupled with 
the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population, it certainly makes MA an attractive business opportunity to get into for any entity that's bearing risk. If they can do it well, it's a remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health that comes with rewarding economics. Like so many other networks, Bassett is evolving a strategy around Medicare. Traditional Medicare has had a quite a considerable grip over the network at 55 to 60% of your managed population. But MA penetration is growing based on shifts in the marketplace in your area as well. So I'd like to know, Leonard, how are you approaching your MA strategy in partnership with regional players and seeking the necessary capital to enhance your pop health infrastructure so that you can take fully delegated risk with these plans? It's interesting. We we follow a lot of the national trends. I think back when we look at 2014, when I started, there was probably a good 75% of the market was in traditional Medicare. Being the region we are, we have a pretty good handle and size on traditional Medicare. It's still the lion's share, but that lion's share is looking to cross over in the next couple of years. We see in our region probably increase from 10 years ago with 50,000 people in eligible for Medicare going up to 60 some thousand this year. And well, this year meaning at the end of 2022. I don't know what the enrollment numbers are right now for 2023, but we've seen a continual rise in the trajectory and the, the curve line of Medicare growth in general. At the same time, we've seen a bit of an erosion in traditional Medicare. I think we're down about 10% in our uh, ACO from our peak. The Medicare side of the world will probably cross over, I think, in 2024. We've seen pockets in New York State that have larger chunks of Medicare Advantage. And they were largely where insurance companies started, regional insurance companies in the Albany area and in the Rochester area. MA is the more prevalent uh, plan. In our area, we still have dominance on traditional Medicare. Where we look to see Medicare Advantage going is a number of things. We have a co-branded program with our largest Blue Cross Blue Shield payer in our region. And that's co-branded, it's not co sharing of risk. It's a isolated product specific to our region that we, we work with Excellus, the Blue Cross provider. Um, we look forward to a couple of things. One is we have a couple of regional players that are large enough to do some more evolved risk sharing, be like an ACO for the MA side with two of the larger regional payers. We entered into an agreement. We're in the process of negotiating it with a uh, venture capital company that has a more national approach where they aggregate some of the uh, MA plans to have enough that they can have risk with all of those. We're not dominated by any individual MA plan. It seems like the eight or so that are in the market each have about 3,000 or more enrollees in those. So we don't see, nobody's emerged as the dominant MA plan. But we would like to take risk on an aggregated level and roll it out with one of the national players in the MA aggregation business, and then continue our strong relationships with the local regional dominant players. I think we have learned from all of them. We even have looked at doing something on our own, which would be a Bassett-sponsored MA product, which we would have, we have an extreme amount of loyalty across the board for our branding and for our name, and an even greater level of 
rand equity in the Medicare market. So we kind of look at it like we do all of the uh, relationships we're in, whether it's like the commercial ACOs or the ACO. We should be ready for risk, I think, in a, in a couple of years. And I always think how easy it is to reduce revenue, but how difficult it is to reduce expenses in a commensurate fashion. So we want to be cautious. We want to understand the trends better. It's just not always about risk readiness just through you know the evolution of time. Or it's so many different things. Getting involved in coding. We have, as, as an organization, not been up to date on coding. In our ACO, we know that if you thought of a rural environment with their usually older, sicker, uh, more need of social determinants of health and other kind of health equity things, our ratio when we do the, the math is about eight basis points below what we think our, our RAF scores or our risk scores for that population are. So getting the coding right, not overcoding, but appropriately coding, we think has value in us. And we historically have asset have been weak on the coding side of the equation. So it's the preparatory work getting us ready for the MA risk, but that's clearly on the horizon. Well, Leonard, I wanted to also ask you about your commercial strategy within your risk-bearing network. It sounds like you're making a very pragmatic decision to you know, steadily prepare the organization for risk. That's not unlike many of the others out there in industry that are trying to you know, figure out how to navigate the landscape. And it certainly seems like commercial is a big opportunity. And we often don't think about commercial lives and value-based care. I mean, we use the term ACO all the time. I mean, that's a Medicare term going back to 2005 when Elliot Fisher coined it and, and certainly uh, Mark McClellan and Jonathan Gruber and others, you know, influenced the Affordable Care Act. So that greenlit ACOs. But, you know, the truth is there's opportunities for shared savings and quality rewards by focusing on the commercial sector. And the Bassett commercial value-based portfolio has several significant plans. It has the, the one you mentioned earlier, the Excelsis Health Plan with your Blue Cross affiliate. It has about 25,000 lives. Um, earlier, you were talking about MA, but you also have a commercial agreement with them. And then you have the Bassett Plus PPO, which covers your your own 6,000 employees and their dependents. And as I understand, you're using that as a learning lab for value-based care innovation. So can you describe your uh, commercial playbook strategy and how does that differ from the work that you're doing in MSSP and Medicare Advantage? Yeah, we've looked at our own population as being the learning lab, as you mentioned, any new idea we come out with, we test there. We look at a number of different things. We we are self-funded, 100% risk for the medical and pharmacy. And given my background, having been at a large regional insurer prior to coming to Bassett, uh, I've always looked at the growth in pharmacy. When I started, pharmacy was $4 per member per month. And I think the whole piece, the whole PMPM was about 100. So it was 4%. And it's grown continually. For our experience at Bassett, we've seen pharmacy go up to you know the $130 PMPM uh, piece of the equation and representing about 20% or greater of the total spend. So we came up with a program called Ambulatory Intensive Pharmacotherapeutics, which is really directed at uh, formulary savings, appropriate kinetics, pharmacodynamics, a number of things. And that's really helped us significantly on the commercial side of the equation. We were actually able to make an arrangement one, with one of the payers 
to fund that for the attributed lives that we have in that commercial ACO, which is about 25,000 lives. But we've reduced the spend. More importantly, we've given better care because we've looked at um, the, you know, just the number of scripts that are written and the number of interventions that we can do. But when you consider 72% of visits end up having a script written to it, we have specialty drugs that have been, you know, key to that. We one percent of our population in the in our employee plan, and it's not different with our commercial experience either. One percent of the population drives about fifty-five percent of our cost on special. We focused on that, trying to produce better care, lower cost, and we've added that and really extended that to the, the commercial side. We have a limited upside and downside program with Excellus, limited in that it, it's it's not full risk. It's uh, There's a couple of risk corridors and then there's a cap on the upside as well as the downside. But again, you know, I, I view those things as progressing. We were ver very early into that with Excellus, early into it to the sense, I think we started that in 2014 when I came in. Many of the larger institutions surrounding area have not entered that until 2018 and 2020. So we've had a head start on, on the things to do to prepare us for that. We watch pharmacy big for a number of reasons. That's money out the door. We have a domestic network that we channel as much into our institution as we can through benefit design. We seem to do very well in the pharmacy side compared to the other commercial ACO blinded information that we get. The commercial ACOs, and I would tell you, having a base in the MSSP has helped us both do well in those programs, as well as help the payers, the, the local payers, the regional payers, understand the program as well. So we've helped make Excellus's program better. We have understood attribution much better. We've understood trending for medical and trending for pharmacy much better. We've made additions and changes to what was going on. So it's an evolution to get there to the right spot. But we're, in, I can't discount any of the things that we've been involved with. There's always some level of learning. There's always some level of innovation. There's always growth in it. The numbers have been good. The fundamental economic equation for ACOs with CMS is you do well and you, you knock down your revenue and you get 50% back if you're lucky. So in a practical sense, as a rural hospital, we struggle every day with just volume and we have to be ready all the time, even for the small amount of the uh, base that we have. So these things are... I mean, to me, it's critical. It's the game that we're going to get to at the end, I think, as a, an economy and as a, a national government. We have to get to a point where value drives the equation and not just cost. But it's not an overnight transformation. It is a complicated and it becomes complicated seemingly more every year. But we seem to always adjust and get through it. But, yeah, I think working in those areas, we've done a, a good job of getting to that point. I used to run two IPAs in Binghamton and Syracuse, and I had my own MSO company. And both of those were at um, full risk. And there was a physician withhold and kind of the old things that people you shied away from. But we did much better under a fully capitated environment with the IPA being the risk-bearing entity than we would have done under fee-for-service. You made a comment, Eric, one time, said that the relationship 
capitation with a physician, the patient is improved through that. And I have believed that myself. I think 20 years ago, if you would have talked to physicians from my experience, I used to mention capitation. It was like a bad word. People thought fee-for-service medicine was the way to enhance the relationship between the patient and the physician. And a lot of that thinking, which I think is backward and outdated, has really changed over time, which is a good thing. I think that we're collectively in this. This is just not a, a medical issue and a you know health issue. This is an economic issue. You know, largest sector of the economy is tied up in this. And we can certainly do better as a collective group than we have, but we're getting there. Leonard, I couldn't agree more with that uh, sentiment. And you're not just concerned about the the national economics, but you're also concerned with fostering health for the rural communities that you serve. And I'd like to dive into this idea of the the patients that you serve in these communities and just set the stage for our listeners. And uh, by saying that rural communities typically face challenges that are quite distinct from those that are, are in more densely populated areas. These include things like less access to innovative tools and services that could better serve the engagement and care management of the population. And we know that there's a divide in life expectancy between rural Americans, which number upward of 60 million people and urban Americans. And this divide started in the 1990s. And since that time, we've seen an alarming divergence in health outcomes that are created by these disparities and inequities. And rural populations have so much more to gain in the ongoing transition to a tech-enabled, value-based future. And I know your health system is leveraging technology and working to improve access to these, what are usually scarcely available specialists and subspecialists, so that your patients can be seen in a timely manner. I'd love to hear your description of the plight of population health in rural communities and how that impacts your value-based care strategy. And how are you expanding access and leveraging digital health tools to better serve rural populations in upstate New York. Ultimately, the question is, how do your rural providers navigate the VBC world? That's a great question. The challenges are obviously one of denominator. There is not enough. We have to be open 24 seven, 365 days a year for ED visits. We don't get many. I think you know you get them, but they're true emergencies. The agricultural community, they're hardy folks. We, we heard a story through our um, institution that's part of Bassett, that's the New York Center for Agricultural Health. And at one of our um, meetings with them, they talked about somebody who finished their chores after they got injured and they didn't come to the hospital till it was essentially too late. But I think being a farmer is probably the most difficult job there is, certainly one of them, underappreciated, overworked, isolated, really left out of things. It is continually a struggle. You talked about technology. We're working with some venture capital people and uh, wearable devices for continuous patient monitoring. And the interesting thing, in addition to the distances that people have to travel for care, is that when we looked at the pilot base, the first 10 people that came through, I don't think anybody had a smartphone. There were like nine flip phones, one smartphone that needed an updating. So you've got that kind of technology lag in a lot of the agricultural communities. But that's something nobody expected because that's not what you experience where this company is from in Silicon Valley or Chicago. You're not going to have that many people that don't have an updated phone or still are relying on flip phones as the 
most prevalent uh, form of communication. So that was a challenge. The whole thing with the whole thing with Wi-Fi and technology and having the base of um, Wi-Fi being not as strong as it might want to be or should be to actually optimize the whole wearable industry and the whole device. There's some there's some you know uh, resistance to change and not adoption as well that may be higher in a, in a rural environment than it is in a more urban environment. You might get the late majority and you might get the laggards a bit more. But Bassett is really committed to community health and the whole rural setting. I mean, I have to say from comparisons otherwise, that's what Bassett is about. We have a research institute. We have the Agricultural Research Center we, we do a number of things that are actually aimed at, at that population. So I think people believe this. Cooperstown is a very interesting place. I mean, we, we have the center where our largest hospital is, is a, a, a town of 1,800 people, probably dominated by a bit more affluent people than, than what the counties represent. You get a lot of physicians that live there. If we have 500 employees that live in uh, Cooperstown, you probably accounted for the whole population. But outside is really more of a, a rural environment. But folks are committed, like I've never seen. We are truly rural. We're not urban and rural. We are more rural. But there's a commitment to that. And the education level of the physicians and the appreciation of that for all of the community is, is pretty strong. So having this kind of setup that's really unique in my mind um, has been really a blessing. And there are challenges in it though, because you can't overcome some of these social determinant of health issues right away. Transportation is a huge issue. Housing is a huge issue. The older, sicker, less affluent patient just by design is, is difficult. We participated in the Medicaid expansion in 2016 through CMS in New York State, and we were our own performing provider system, which really was very useful to connect the community benefit organizations with Bassett and to really be able to look at readmissions, inappropriate use of EDs. And we set up a lot of projects based on trying to minimize those things as well as you could. And a lot of innovation, I think, occurred. We're looking to do another 1115 waiver in 2023, probably beginning in 2024 in terms of being finalized in 23, but operational in 24. And we're, we're in that same point trying to figure out how we optimize the, the clinical side of the world with the other piece of the world, which may be more indicative of the health status of people. If you, if you look at the charts, it's like 80% is things outside the clinic, 20% is the important things inside the clinic. But we, we've got to adopt different ways. We've been involved with transportation organizations. We've been much more involved with like food banks, with a whole bunch of different approaches on getting people to the right kind of food, getting people in, in housing when there's housing insecurity. That That's something that We've known that forever, but we've never been able or never willing to connect the dots on and make that better. It's interesting. All the things I recall hearing in undergraduate about healthcare are not necessarily new. It's just that we never 
used what we know. And now we're coming in a time where we have to either economically forced to on a national level or on a, a local level, but we have to be something bigger than we are and beyond the clinic. I, I talk about creating an anchor institution where Bassett would be the lead health organization for education, for food insecurity, for housing insecurity, for all of the other things, whether you were a patient of Bassett or whether you're just a member of our community. So we're changing minds and we're trying to shoot big on it and it, it won't happen overnight. We'll talk about it for a while, we'll conceptualize it and then we'll make action, but that's how we've seen things roll out with us. Well, Leonard, you mentioned earlier you're being very cautious about moving into downside risk. I think that's a shared sentiment across the industry, but it does seem like we're now reaching a tipping point in the value economy, just if anything, out of economic necessity that you were going to have to build additional infrastructure capability and uh, figure out how to manage delegated premiums that come down from the major payers. And as I understand, Bassett is looking to move the needle on value by eventually getting as close to the premium dollar as possible. And in the long term, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, the, you'll have to have the delegated capabilities, but then you have to hire actuaries and pay claims and figure out how to capitate providers and payment models and ultimately take that downside risk exposure. And uh, CMS certainly seems that, you know, they're signaling that this is going to be an inevitable fate in the value movement. I mean, you, you look at something like uh, ACO Reach, where it has a, a capitation as the predominant feature in that, in that model and it's using a lot of the same levers as delegated. And now we're seeing, you know, just, uh, I think a lot more appetite, to, you know, for groups that are more advanced to eventually, you know, uh, get into risk. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide us with a perspective on some of the new payment mechanisms that are out there, like global capitation and direct contracting. Are, are we going to see more commitment and willingness to delegate risk by CMS and Medicare Advantage and commercial insurers? And will that be a, a driver of change in the value landscape? And and then also, how is Bassett Healthcare evolving as payment models uh, shift to increase risk? Yeah, those are the key things. I think we want to be closer to the wallet of the insurance company. Right now, I think there is a you know mal distribution of premium dollars when they come in. We've seen some of the largest profits of commercial insurance this year than ever. Um, I haven't seen that on the provider side. Most of the providers I know are losing money this year. And I think the big ones are like Cleveland Clinic. But I saw someone at uh, 2.2 million in loss last year. But you know, the, it's always that issue. Probably this shows my provider side bias where we can exist. I spent 15 years on the insurance side of the world um, in the operations and regional operations of an insurance company and running an IPA, which was really representing the physicians to the, to the insurance company. But that collective thought of you know, representing the providers to the insurance company is kind of what I like to do. And I would say that clearly that we have to get the trends and in medical and pharmacy right. I mean, it's not that capitation is bad or that it's the answer. And it's not that fee-for-service necessarily is as evil as I sometimes think it is. But you've got to have 
payment system that supports the work that you're doing. And we don't, as a provider, get to have a line that's called reserves that we can build into the fee for service. So there's gotta be changes fundamentally. It's about getting the numbers right. I think it's as simple as that, but it's also taking on that risk, but knowing what you're doing. I can't you know, underscore enough that I think it comes down to fundamentals that you have to know trends. We had years, a couple of years ago where the trend on pharmacy was going up like 17 to 21%. And I would check outside sources and our insurance partners who were, I think, functioning in best interest of the program were coming up with you know single digit increases, which were not sustainable. You were gonna back yourself in the corner coming out of the gates. So I think it's, you gotta get that right. You've gotta do your homework and you've gotta protect that revenue stream. It's easy to ratchet down revenue not easy to for us with limited volume and you know just the the order of scale that we can reduce costs so i don't want us to get into risk for risk's sake i'd like us to get in risk for good risk and things that we can do to create value better care at the same cost is still a value play better care and lower cost is a, is a double win but we've got to be con- conscious of of what we're getting into. I've seen people say, I do value-based care all the time. And when I really try to be a purist and ask them what they're doing, it's not my flavor of what value-based care is. So I think we've gotta be closer to the payers, but there's gotta be some level of understanding for providers that what that is. And we may have to hire actuaries. We, I would love to do that. I would love Bassett to be fully integrated. And my definition of full integration before would be just the wraparound insurance company. Um, when I, I work on creating a full vertical and vertically integrated system in Binghamton, New York, and my boss at the time, who was the president of the system, defined, he told me, we don't take risk. So we're never gonna do what you wanna do. And I said, you know, we take risk every day. We saw it in COVID. We took, um, you know, volume risk. Nobody was coming in and things were going down. So it depends how you define risk and what you're willing to tolerate. But we shouldn't think of risk just being taking a, a set of a premium and working forward. I think I've got 20 plus years with successful IPA management that indicates that we can do very well in the risk based world. And it allows physicians to be more in a, in a tighter, more understanding relationship with the patients rather than cranking RVUs out. And we've seen physician burnout because of that and dissatisfaction. I mean, you had one of your podcasts with the physicians, uh, I think Dr. Kerbal and uh, Dyke Drummond, who talked about physician burnout and what we see. And we see all those things in a rural environment. We see workforce issues. We see all these you know, drivers of stress that keep piling stress on and and burning people out. And it's, I think, capitation done correctly with the right kind of trends and everything will help alleviate some of that factory burnout style of medicine that we're practicing right now. We've become a machine on trying to crank out widgets to some degree, and that doesn't lead to a lot of satisfaction. And in this type of industry, that's key to the whole equation. Leonard, you mentioned a little earlier, and I'd like to engage you on this important challenge of managing pharmacy spend and, and your network's approach to that. You know, healthcare spending in the United States is 
is too high and it continues to increase as does the spending for prescription drugs in particular. And although the $329 billion spend on prescription drugs is still a relatively small part of the $3,800 billion that we spend on healthcare in total, prescription drugs are still the fastest growing healthcare expenditure and they consistently outpace other health spending. It's definitely an unsustainable pharmaceutical cost trajectory with, with Americans spending on average of over $1,500 per person on prescription drugs and paying much more than comparable nations. In your commercial population, I understand that the pharmacy is 25% of your overall spend. As you mentioned, you've pioneered an ambulatory intensive pharmacotherapeutics or AIP to promote a more value-based approach to prescription drug utilization. And I'd really like to dive in more and ha have you discuss some of the challenges your network is facing in more depth with the pharmacy spend and how that's become an important area of focus in your population health playbook. Yes, that, that's such a big part. And for us, with our patient, with our employees, it's money out the door. When we do things here, it's captured inside and, you know, it's it's work, medical work that we send to our providers. When it leaves the system, whether to other providers or on pharmacy, we really consider that money out the door. We pay taxes on it and it's much more increased and it doesn't necessarily always add to the value of the care somebody's getting. But we identified uh, pharmacy as such a big thing. I've read articles and I can't recall if it's in another 10 years that it's going to crowd out the remaining factors of like inpatient, outpatient, physician, and you know other things that make up that medical expense. So we've tried to focus on not eliminating pharmacy, but we've had people come in because they may go to another system. They may have their primary care visit here. And these were our employees and they would be on 27 different prescriptions. So there wasn't a reconciliation. There wasn't anything to go back. Uh, we're on Epic all through our system here, but people don't tell their cardiologists that Bassett that they're on different drugs. They don't tell so getting that whole review is important to understand what you're playing with at first. We swapped a lot of drugs around. I forget what we reduced it down to, but I wanted to say it was something like eight scripts versus the uh, 27 that they were on. So there's a huge issue. I remember one of the early pharmacists that started the program with me said, that man's going to have a stroke. And we, we, you know, he thinks we saved a life with it. I look at the financial aspect of it. We certainly saved money and and I think we increase the care by just doing that, by getting the right scripts, the right place, the right amount, everybody know what's going on. Um, and I think, I think the, from an operational standpoint, I think I'm kind of mixed on pharmacy. I think people live better lives than they ever did before with, with new drugs. We, I've seen it in my family. I've seen it with people I know. I've seen somebody who had rheumatoid arthritis and started taking Embril, and they went from being crippled to being able to move like there was nothing wrong. And that certainly improved the quality of those people's lives. And we just saw it on one of the, uh, we talked with um, one of the essentially pharmacists that work pharmaceutical company today. And I forget the drug, but it was clearly the intervention with this drug would kind of stave off the need for dialysis as many as 15 years down the road. And we were talking about the average year on dialysis, I think is 80 to 100,000. 
So if you're looking at 15 years of 80 to 100,000, you're talking serious dollars and the quality of life is better. Now that may be an extreme number that they use, but nonetheless, understanding that better. We take advantage of 340B. We're the kind of hospital that was made for that. Rural, I've seen the Humira cost that when I was first told the 340B price, it was amazingly uh, less. But we, we're, creating a, we're creating especially pharmacy inside of Bassett. We're working with some outside vendors to understand that, to capture that revenue line so that we can apply it to our, our bottom line. And we can, we have a bunch of committed pharmacists who really have all of the best things about retail and all of the kind of caring of an inpatient group. So they do very well on it. But I think pharmacy, if it does crowd out the other things, the other inpatient, outpatient physician costs by doing a better job of managing someone's care, even though I'm a firm believer, you can't manage a population line item by line item. But if it crowds out, but replaces those other interventional, whether they be medical or therapeutics, but it'll be okay. But if we see healthcare costs and pharmacy go up to represent 50% and that other side doesn't move, you're in an unsustainable economic environment and less people are going to get healthcare I think than than before. So being on the front end of that, we the pharmacists that I employ in the population health department, they don't see patients. They review the charts in Epic, they review all of the appropriate data, and then we make interventional recommendations to the outbox or the inbox at the physicians. It took a long time to develop the trust and to develop this program. We started out small with a couple of we identified some physician champions. We worked with them. There were physicians who were threatened at first that a pharmacist is telling me what to do and looking over my shoulder and doesn't agree with me. And then we we had to really develop that trust that it was a collaborative, not a um, I'm catching you at something. Because you, you, I remember hearing years ago the number of physicians in practice and the number of new drugs coming out that came out in the last couple of years. So most people didn't hear about those drugs when they were in medical school and are at somewhat of a disadvantage and in, in, in right in a historical pattern, not necessarily getting updated. But it's taken quite a while to get that level of collaboration with the physicians. And we don't take that for granted in any fashion. If a physician has a comment, question, concern, our folks take phone calls all the time. They work a normal you know, eight to five day, but if they get a text or if they get something after hours, they'll pop in with the physician and talk, the nurse practitioner or the PA, but they will get back. And it's not just necessarily for the insurance companies that we have the arrangements with, because that's that's the quickest way to kill the program would be non-responsive to the physician who needs help with a Medicare patient that is not part of our commercial deal. We service all those things. We, we built up very good relationships, but that's the key to it, as many things are, is the relationship with the frontline provider and working together on that. Our guys are very, it's it's a great group in my area. They help out when, during COVID, they helped out with a number of things that weren't, weren't really part of the arrangement, but we get a return for the insurance companies that's in the 30% range, which isn't bad, but we also add value. I've talked to employer groups to say, well, you know, my costs are a little higher. The self-insured pool of, of provider groups have said, 
my my uh, third party administrator cost is a little higher. Say, well, we do value added programs with those folks that really translate to better care for everybody in your population. You know, we we'd like to do that for everybody, but the reality is, if there's somebody that's going to help us cover the cost, we'll do it selectively to that population. But pharmacy is like a ticking time bomb. I, I watched it double in the 90s, year after year after year. And um, it would it went from you know $4 to $16. And, and the PMPM for the medical didn't go up that much. So it's continually kind of crowded out the medical side of it. I, I try to make the example. And for us, I think these numbers are still correct. Our average generic was $5. Our average brand was $50. And our average specialty drug was uh, $5,000. So we've got 1% that drives 55% of our total medical spend for most of our populations. And if new drugs come out that double the amount of people that are eligible for a new specialty drug, we could be just seeing uh, a trajectory on pharmacy that's uh, unreal. So it, it's a tight area. It um, needs special attention just by the nature of that portion of the industry. and you know, it's just, it, it's one hand fascinating and the other hand frightening, but it's a key piece for us and we watch it very closely. Well, Leonard, you mentioned uh, pharmacy being a ticking time bomb. Another thing that I think is really about to explode right now is uh, all these workforce challenges we're seeing in the industry. Really concerning right now. I mean, the healthcare workforce, especially nurses, are seeing extreme short staffing. A lot of employees are strained and they're facing immense pressure. On top of that, hospitals are reeling from the current cost and labor structures where we've seen 10% increase in clinical labor costs per patient day since the start of the pandemic. And that's amounted to a, an additional $20 million for a 500-bed hospital and for a larger health system with an annual base payroll of let's say 1.6 billion, that, that's going to add another 115 million to your bottom line. And seems like the two primary factors driving this increase are higher turnover among clinical staff and uh, continued reliance on travel nurses, which are mutually reinforcing. And there was a, a survey that came out a few weeks ago from the American College of Healthcare Executives, and they, they uh, surveyed CEOs. And the number one issue right now that was cited in that survey was workforce issues and personnel shortages, number one on the list. So you know, Leonard, I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on the issues we're seeing in the workforce related to burnout and moral injury. And, you know, how can we address them to have a, an adequate labor supply to deliver care? And, and how is Bassett Healthcare navigating this challenge currently? That's what we're experiencing. I mean, we call it agency nursing. And that line is so thick. Every year it goes up and we seem to try to budget it correctly. But we have seen the introduction of travel nursing just continue to grow. And that cost is when you can get the nurses, it's just three times multiple of what we pay for an individual nurse or, or even greater. I understand, you know, they say people follow their own economic best decisions. And I understand why a travel nurse who can go an hour and a half away for three days and double their salary and, and stay at a bed and breakfast for free or a Airbnb for free and have a stipend to eat and, you know, come home and take their kids to school on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and be home on the weekend and leave Monday morning and you know, put in the 12 hour shift, why they would do it. 
I know that New York State or the Health Association, as well as insurers and CEOs of provider groups, met with the governor to talk about what can be done to regulate the whole travel industry. And that'll be a longer a lead policy issue, obviously, developing with that. But when you mentioned the, the staffing issue, Eric, I think we just were at a, an internal meeting the other day where at any given shift, so you think of the way we do a 12-hour shift, so there's 14 shifts a week, that at any given shift, we're down six to 16 nurses, which we, we've got the demand to fill those beds, but we can't get them in because of that issue. So that's obviously a huge revenue loss. That and travel nursing expenses are contributing to the financial impact for many providers in New York State and, and clearly us. So we see it affecting the demand side when the demand is there and, and opportunity costs are not being able to put people in beds. We're at red bed status now more than ever, meaning we've got a patient demand and we don't have the beds for uh, capacity. We've seen the whole piece of issue with travel nursing added, added to that, as well as just burnout. And I think early on, I was going to say, I think a lot of this goes back to the payment mechanisms. The fee-for-service architecture has so many different cracks in it that I think these things go back to payment levels as well. There's always going to be opportunists in healthcare, and I don't mean that travel nurses are opportunists. My, my son's sister-in-law is a travel nurse and she does it to do better for her family. She, using that example I talked about, that's her schedule. She left the hospital she used to work in. She travels across the border to Pennsylvania, an hour and a half away, really does well for her family. And uh, the individual economic incentives are different than the collective economy's incentives. But we've got to figure out a way that that's the exception, not necessarily the rule. And we've got to figure out a way to either bring more people into the workforce to do these jobs, but it's a reminder that how connected we all are, regardless of what industry we're in and the reliance on healthcare. So, I mean, I got into healthcare right out of school. I took that as an undergraduate, leaned in the healthcare world all the time. So this is what I do and what I see, but, you know, it is so, and I, can say there's been periods of time through my career where we saw the influx of managed care. And I rode on that wave and loved it because I thought it was the right thing to do, largely because our IPAs are capitated and we did better things and we acted like a group rather than a bunch of, you know, a thousand independent practitioners. But there's those, I've heard the term now, you know, the insurgents versus the incumbents. And I'm not sure, even though I would classify myself as a capitalist, where this all ends up on the venture capital side of healthcare. There may be great ideas and great innovation. I've also met with some that are clearly in it for the short play, not the long play. And I don't know what that's going to mean to our communities once people pull out. Is that going to be a scorched earth strategy? And I would not want to bet the community's health status on new entrants into healthcare if they're not there for the long term. You know, Leonard, you bring up a great point. And as we think about what you just said and apply that to the large populations that we serve, I'd like to wrap up our conversation today by talking about health equity. You know, this is a topic that's very near and dear to our hearts as we engage leaders on this show. 
And, you know, value-based care isn't just an end goal in itself. It's a means to an end and, and achieving health equity is that end. And New York is one of a number of states that's attempting to address the social needs of Medicaid enrollees through, as you mentioned, Section 1115 waivers with SDOH-related provisions. And this allows the MCOs to pay for the direct costs of non-medical services like housing and food. And recently, New York requested a health equity reform amendment that would establish regional organizations to coordinate health equity improvement initiatives and to provide evidence-based interventions to address social care needs. I'd love to have your explanation for our listeners. If you could give us an overview of the 1115 waiver and how that is supporting your work in improving health equity for underserved patients. Yeah, the previous expansion that I was involved with was called Delivery System Redesign Incentive Payment Program. And they, they meaning New York State, worked with CMS to develop 25 they were called PPSs, Performing Provider Systems. So they were strategically located across New York State. And we were our own. We were like large enough and kind of, kind of isolated and control the marketplace. But we developed solid relationships and new relationships with over 100 different community benefit organizations. This new program, which is really about equity, health equity, is the new 1115. So far, it has taken nine economic development zones and kind of put them in the to cover the state. So I think in each area, there's roughly eight or nine, maybe 10 different counties that are in a region. And, and they're developing board and organizations of governance around those nine counties. And they're going to be called HERO organizations. And they're essentially, that's an acronym for Health Equity Regional Organization. And that will be funding and planning and administrative governance of the healthcare region. The other level of organization, so there's kind of a multi-level approach, are gonna be called Social Determinant of Health Networks, SDOH networks. And from what I've read and what I've talked about with folks now, that will be not like the PPSs of, of eight years ago, but they will be more like organizations that are uh, self-governing with their own networks of social determinant of health networks. So I haven't fully fleshed out what that might look like in operation, but we intend to be involved at both levels, both on the hero organizations on a, a higher governance level, and then on the boots on the ground side of the world with the social determinant of health networks, which is really where the work's gonna get done. The district program was more uh, fundamentally focused on reducing ED visits and reducing readmissions and people would develop projects, bring them to our organization or any of the organizations in, in New York State, try to get funding for those programs that would look to reduce ED visits and spend. There were novel ideas. I remember being at one of the early district meetings and uh, folks we're giving people in, in inner cities air conditioning for free. And, you know, to the, the non-healthcare, public health, non-population health people, it seems like, wow, these people are getting free air conditioners. But the idea behind it was to not have the asthma attacks exacerbate to a point where the people had to be admitted if they didn't have a rescue inhaler. So there was sound reasoning behind it, but it took a new way of thinking. There were a lot of CBOs that popped up and got funding on transportation 
and there was a whole new infrastructure system that worked there. We took one uh, trailer park area across the other side of our town here near the Walmart, and we found out that people from that zip code were using the ED at a much higher rate. So we went in there, they had uh, veggie nights and cooking nights, and they did different things for act after school activities. And we did a number of things. We kind of found that if we did things like that, people were calling our navigators. We have a Medicaid health home also, and they were connecting with people so they didn't go to the ED. And that was that was a successful program. There were a number that were innovative and, and were uh, test and they did well. Some may not have done as well, but you don't find out what success is until you have a couple of things that don't quite work right. But um, I think, you know, this new program is not going to be based on the philanthropic kind of distribution of grant money on projects. It's going to be more related to trying to go after disparities of care that people have, either because of their region or their race or their ethnicity or their location. So I'm looking forward to that. It's not a fully baked cake yet. We're meeting with one of the uh, former PPSs in another region to just exchange ideas next week and see where we are. But I was told that a lot of this is subject to change. New York State had a whole idea the other time around and CMS changed it and had the PPSs be kind of the dominant player in that. But it's a great idea. I mean, these are vulnerable people that, um, you know, we've, we've had successes with uh, pantries and successes with a food van. That the, the good thing about that is the food van was at a a school called Pathfinder Village that deals with uh, children with some special needs, but they ran the whole kitchen and ran the whole kind of delivery system. And so it was really meaningful and tangible work for people to do. And it had such an important impact on the communities. That was one of the things I recall being most successful, both from, it was a great idea to match things up and everybody felt good about it. And it had a reduction in ED visits, but I think health equity is going to be a, that's a challenge and it's harder to cover. I mean, I understand the visuals when they say in the definition that you don't give everybody the same thing. You get every, give people what's appropriate for them to have, be at the same level. That's easier said and easier to conceptualize than it is to deliver. But I think we're moving in the right direction. It's, it's really a pleasure to watch this now. Uh, you know, I probably all wish it came 20 years ago, but um, it's happening now, which makes it for an extremely exciting career, but an extremely fulfilling um, place to be in, in terms of healthcare. So I'm anxious to get started on it. And yet we don't know fully when it's going to be. We heard that the early announcement is going to be in April 1st in New York, but it may not roll out to the fall. Well, Leonard, it's just great work you're doing there at uh, Bassett Healthcare, and I really appreciate your time today. I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years, and I hope I can find myself in Cooperstown one of these days and go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and if so, uh, I would love to hang out with you there and, and, and see it firsthand. We'd love to have you. That would be great. It's a, it's a, that Hall of Fame grows every year, and I think, Eric, I was saying maybe you know, you think of a community with 1,800 people that could balloon up to 85,000 people on a weekend. It's a whole different place. But uh, please come. We'd love to have you.
Absolutely. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. You know, it's a great story to tell. I know it's early in the making, but the work that you're doing and the knowledge base that you're acquiring and the outcomes that you're getting, it really seems like you're moving on the right direction in terms of being able to really create transformation for the populations that you serve. Thank you.